This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Last week, my producer Julie and I traveled to Anaheim, California for one of the biggest events in the creator industry, VidCon. It was a chance to catch up with some of the creators we normally only see on a screen in right, person. It's like makeshift. I yeah. love it. Yeah. This is my first time doing it like with these kind of microphones. Oh, really? So I, I have a podcast. Yeah, yeah, of I course. I do it from like Zoom. And so it's always yeah. like. I know. So I've never like done an in-person podcast, which I've always wanted really? to do. So this is oh, nice. Yeah. We used to do them in our office, uh, but then COVID hit and we yeah. just didn't do it anymore. And I got used to doing it through Zoom, but like I miss the in-person The in-person. Because there's so yeah. much that you get from it. Exactly. But yeah, it's so funny that there's like a whole crop of podcasters that just no Zoom, which just, is why. That's all I know. That's, that's all I continue to do. Because I'm just like, oh, it's so easy. You don't have to bring anyone to the studio. Another thing that makes me feel old. <laughs> I remember in my day. Like, in my day, before, <laughs> before and after the COVID. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. So, as I just mentioned, my producer, Julia, and I, hi, Julia, went to VidCon this past week, and one of the creators we had a chance to chat with was Joel Bravel. Joel's a fourth-year medical student at Washington State University who rose to fame on TikTok for calling out the racial inequities in the healthcare system. In our conversation, Joel breaks down why educating people on social media is so important and potentially life-saving. He also explains how he plans to incorporate what he does online into his work as a practicing doctor. So you, of course, have made this platform for yourself in calling out a lot of the disparities in medicine and the healthcare industry. So when did you decide to speak up about this? Yeah, for me, it really started during the COVID pandemic. I think there was just so much going on at that time as a medical student. I'd finished my first year of medical school. I was starting my second year of medical school, and there was just so much happening in the zeitgeist of politics when it came to black Americans. George Floyd had been murdered, Ahmed Aubrey. I remember his story hit me really hard because he was 26 years old at the time. Mm. I was 26. Yeah. He was running. I love to run. And there were so many commonalities. And then there's Breonna Taylor as well and her death. And I think as a medical student, I was one of the few at my medical school. I was in the first cohort of black students at my medical school. Mm. And I kept thinking to myself, what can I do as a medical student, being in this unique kind of privilege to be seeing a system and knowing the system is broken? How can I actually take advantage of my situation and actually educate about it? Hmm. So that's what really led me to start wanting to talk about it more broadly. And I found one of the best ways to be TikTok and Instagram and social media, kind of the microphone of my generation. Mm -hmm. So it really was one article I read, research article, about this device called a pulse oximeter that really led me to start posting consistently. Pulse oximeters are these devices that go on your finger and they measure your blood oxygen saturation. My sister sent me one when I got COVID. Yeah, and <laughs> she's a doctor. People, most yeah. people got them, right? Yeah, like yeah. Everyone said, oh, I, I want to make sure I don't have COVID. Let's get this pulse oximeter, make sure my breathing, my oxygen is all right. But what this research study showed was that these devices can read inaccurately on darker skin. They can overestimate on darker skin tones, meaning that if a black patient has lower lung oxygen saturation, it won't catch it. And studies subsequently showed that actually led to less black Americans getting supplemental oxygen and being sent home earlier from the hospital. And so that first research article I saw shocked me. So I created a video about it that ended up going viral on TikTok and got hundreds of thousands of comments from people saying, 
I never knew this. Mm -hmm. Doctor saying, I use this all the time. I didn't know about it. Patient saying, I just bought one. Is it going to read accurately on me? I didn't have all the answers, but I knew I'd open this conversation, especially during the COVID pandemic with everything going on that needed to be had. Yeah. So how much did you know of, because this isn't the only thing, because I've seen mm. your videos. I mean, yeah. you call out how different skin conditions can look different on black skin, obviously, mm -hmm. which seems like a no-brainer in yeah. some ways, but a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. So I guess when it comes to topics like this, like how aware were you before you really started diving in? So I went to college at Yale University, and while I was there... Brag. <laughs> <laughs> I say that, though, because Yale's in New Haven. Mm-hmm. But then New Haven is like this little bubble. When you're at Yale, yeah. you don't think about the outside world. But a lot of the work I did was in the community. Yeah. It was at the hospitals in the area. It was at the local schools. I ran a mentorship program there. And for me, I kept seeing this dichotomy between the world that was at Yale, this like liberal bubble Ivy League, versus the world that was literally less than a mile outside at the hospitals and also at the schools and the lack of education that was happening. And then also just like the lack of healthcare or the lack of knowledge that people had about their own health. And when I came into medical school, I started to see the things that were leading to the problems that no one talked about. So things like pulse oximeters, mm. that it was actually about how a device was made, that there weren't people that were black included in the trials when they were making these devices. Or about, like you mentioned, skin tone and how in dermatology, in medical school, we only learned what conditions looked like on lighter skin tones, mm -hmm. not darker skin tones. And when you actually look at what that does, for something like Lyme disease, yes. black Americans are more likely to be diagnosed at later stages of Lyme disease because often you're looking for what's called a bullseye rash, but in darker skin, it can look like a bruise. Yeah. And if you try and Google it, you will not find what it looks like. And so I remember when I made my first pulse oximeter video, I went to my sister who's a physician, mm. and she had just graduated medical school and was in her first year of residency. And I was like, Rachel, did you know about this? And she's like, no, I never heard about this, but did you know about this? And she told me about something called the GFR equation. GFR stands for glomerular filtration rate. It essentially measures how well your kidneys work. Mm. If you have a high GFR number, that means your kidneys are working well, they can filter out the toxins. If you have a low GFR number, that means your kidneys aren't working as well. And she told me about how this equation that was used for GFR was calculated differently for black patients and non-black. And only that distinction, black and non-black. For black patients, it added a multiplier of 1.3, hmm. meaning that if you were black, it assumed that your kidneys worked better than everyone else's. Huh. But if you were black, that meant you were less likely to get referrals to nephrologists mm. and you were less likely to get kidney transplants mm. because your kidneys looked like they were working better than anyone else's. Right. And so only recently, I think it was in 2021, they made a new equation that doesn't include race anymore after doing studies that were like, okay, yeah, it makes no sense to use race. And they've also actually now put out legislation that says if you had the race-based equation and that led you to be delayed to get a kidney transplant, you can now be moved up early. Someone actually reached out to me just last month and said, I saw your video about the GFR. I had actually had one calculated from race. I reached out to them, and now I'm five years earlier to get a kidney transplant than I otherwise would have been. Wow. So things like that I never knew about. But once I started going down the rabbit hole, started realizing just how much is out there. Right. And in going down the rabbit hole, you're established on TikTok, but you're still up and coming doctor, so to yeah. speak. And so for you to be up and coming while also speaking out, speaking truth, yeah. but we all know that speaking truth can lead to repercussions, especially yeah. if you're a person of color. Yep. So have you faced any backlash from people within the medical community yep. for speaking out on these yep. topics? 
I've been very careful about how I talk about things. As you so should. One, <laughs> because as you mentioned, I'm up and coming in the medical field. I'm not a doctor yet. I'm still a medical student. So I try and keep everything very fact yeah. based on studies that are out there. But yes, there have been like pushback from people maybe on Twitter that'll say, who is this guy? He's a medical student. What does he know? Or why is he talking about this? He should be focusing on his studies. At least you're in medical school. A lot of people <laughs> have really quick Twitter fingers. So they've yes. never even stepped foot inside. Exactly. <laughs> My Classroom. response to those people, though, is that I feel like I come from this unique privilege of being able to go through the system and call it out as I'm walking through it. Mm. That as a medical student, I'm seeing firsthand the things that other people missed or never got that I wish I was having. And so my whole goal isn't to create new things necessarily. It's to call out things that are already there as a medical student and just be honest about what I'm seeing. It's hearing that one of my professors said that black people have thicker skin. Like finding the myths that exist and knowing those things are not true when I'm a medical student and when I'm a black medical student have been really, really key. And what year was this? <laughs> that was my first year of medical school. We were suturing on like banana peels or something. And the physician said, yeah, you want to use different needle size based on like race. And so if you have thicker skin, like black people, you want to use bigger needles. And I was like, ah, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and my so God. these myths exist. And there was even a study done in 2017 that I always reference that found that medical students still believe, medical students and residents, 50% of them that were surveyed still believe in biological differences between black and white patients. So things like black people feel less pain yeah. or have less nerve endings or have thicker skin mm -hmm. or their blood coagulates more. Weird things like that that people still believe because it's been passed down. We don't have a curriculum that says, how do we be anti-racist? How do we make sure we root out these things before we graduate our students? I actually did an episode on our podcast about this where I actually interviewed my sister because mm. she has a lot of opinions about doctors being on TikTok mm. and she's pretty much against it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because she's like, people already go to WebMD and scare themselves silly. Yeah. And I can see both sides of the argument of like how so social media, being online too much can kind of make you spiral with certain things, but yep. then also there's like a wealth of information out there. Mm -hmm. And so where do you exist? I mean, yeah. as a medical student slash content creator, I don't want to assume that you're all for <laughs> a little it. little biased. Yeah, but... I was going to say. So I mean, like, where, what's your take on medicine at the intersection of social media? Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm a little biased to say that social media overall can be used as mm -hmm. a good, especially when doctors are on it more. But like you mentioned, that is a fear I actually have myself that like my whole series that was called racial bias in medicine. I felt like I was stuck up a lot of fear and I wasn't giving enough solutions. And so I had to figure out how do I change from just like fear mongering, right. To actually provide solutions. And the nice thing was like at the same time as I was building the series of videos, solutions were coming out. So things like the GFR equation, removing race. So I was able to talk about that. Things like dermatology books becoming more diverse and a new book being created. I was able to talk about that. Pulse oximeters, people actually working on a new device that would work equally. And so I started to realize that I had to be very careful about not just putting out the fears that are out there, but also make sure people realize these are things that are being worked on or here's how you can get involved or here's how you can use this information to better your own health. Mm. And that's one thing I've very much focused on, especially now, is making sure I always have like one line at the end that says, here's what's happening or here's what you can do when you go to the doctor's office. Because the whole point of putting this information out there is not to scare people, but to empower people, mm. to be able to ask more questions, to be able to feel like they have better control of their health. Just one quick story about that. Yeah. I received a LinkedIn message in 2021 from a young black man who had gotten COVID. And he told me about how he went to the hospital and he wasn't feeling very well, had classic symptoms of COVID, shortness of breath, et cetera. And the doctors, when he got there, took his pulse ox and said, hey, you're a young guy, go home. 
And he actually said, no, I'm not going to go home. Here's a video I saw online that says that this device may not work as well on me. And they were like, whatever, you can stay at night, why not? It's a good thing he did because he ended up crashing that night. Wow. Had to be intubated, was sent to the ICU department. And it got so bad that they brought him an iPad to talk to his wife and his newborn child. That he was, it seemed like he was about to die. Wow. He thankfully recovered, which is how I got the message. But he sent me a message saying, if I hadn't seen your video, I wouldn't be here today. And I think messages like that just remind me how important it is to put that information out there. Even if it can be scary, it at least gets people to be aware of what can happen to them. Because these things are reality. They're happening all the time. And if we don't have accurate information out there, and I think that's the key too, it has to be accurate. WebMD, the reason why people get so scared of it is because it just throws everything out there without breaking down what we call in medicine like our differential. Mm -hmm. How do you distinguish a fever from cancer? <laughs> like, or how do you distinguish just like bacterial infection from bacterial infection that's causing weight loss from like cancer that's causing weight loss. Yeah. And it's hard to do that when you look at just something online, but when you're actually able to talk and ask questions and communicate on TikTok or on Instagram in the comments and ask additional questions, you can get to the really, the heart of things to be able to better understand what is it that I need from this piece of information that will be useful for me and help me be better overall and be more, be healthier overall too. Mm. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we're back, we'll hear more from Joel about how he plans to merge being a creator with practicing medicine. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So has your work as a content creator changed your thought or your trajectory in medicine? Because mm. I feel like you're having such real world impact mm -hmm. doing what you're doing as a creator. And of course, I mean, I would assume you're going to, you're going to finish med school. Oh, Please absolutely. finish. I was going to say. In my last year, don't listen, jinx that. I was just going <laughs> to, I have less than a year left. Please don't jinx that. But here's the thing, because I feel like you've kind of, you've kind of gone to the point, you're past the event horizon in terms of being this creator that's having all this impact. So like, how are you thinking about incorporating what you're doing as a content creator when you are, yeah. when you get that white coat. <laughs> yeah, I love that question because it's something I think about all the time. Right. I know one, I will definitely practice uh, because I feel like so much of my content is built off of understanding what's happening in the real world mm -hmm. and then trying to translate that so people understand. But I also am realizing that there's not enough information or people doing what I'm doing. So it's now, how do we educate the next generation about, here's how you accurately put information out there for your patients. Not in a way like I was mentioning, that's fear mongering, but just is practical, informational, it is engaging to actually to get people to want to listen. Yeah. I work with a lot of different organizations from the American Medical Association to the American Lung Association to the American Cancer Association about how do we put out campaigns out there that will actually help communities, especially communities that have been ignored for decades, while recognizing that their fears are valid, that there was things done historically that led to communities not wanting to seek care. I think it's amazing that we have people like Dr. Pimple Popper out there, <laughs> right? But I really want there to be on the big screen, more information like what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I want to put out a TV show about that. Or I want to work on a children's TV show that shows that young black kids can become doctors too. And here's what it looks like. Maybe it'll sit on Nickelodeon if you're listening. I'm, no? Listen. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of these things could be... Part of the problem is like we don't have a diverse population right now in medicine. Mm. I mean, because if we look at medicine right now, less than 6% of all physicians are black. But there was a recent study that was done just two months ago, and it showed that the more black physicians you have in a county, the better health that county has overall. 
but the saddest part about that study was they wanted to look at every county in the United States, but they had to rule out half of the counties because there was no black doctor in that county. And so Shocking. Stu- exactly. <laughs> so studies show that when you have a diverse workforce, healthcare gets better for all. It seems pretty simple, but we're not doing enough policy-wise. We're not doing enough in terms of creating like pathway programs for students to get into those places. And actually, when you actually even think about why there isn't that many black physicians or Latino physicians or et cetera, or even women physicians as well, it comes down to history. There's this thing called the Flexner Report, where in 1910, Abraham Flexner was commissioned by the American Medical Association to go to all the schools, the medical schools in the United States, and essentially look at how they were run. What ended up happening was a lot of schools were shut down, the majority of those being schools that specifically trained women or specifically trained black physicians. And so that meant two generations went by with there being no physicians of color or a lot of women physicians not being trained. It wasn't until the 1960s with the Civil Rights Act that these schools actually reintegrate and make sure that they were training black doctors as well. And so I think that's a big thing and it takes a lot to fix that because there's a historical reason why. So there has to be an actual a specific push to make sure that we correct those wrongs as well. So when I think about like my future, my whole goal is to empower other black students, black kids, to become doctors. And not just black kids, but people of, uh, of all backgrounds that have historically been ignored in medicine. And I think that's what I hope my legacy will be. I'm using media as a vehicle towards that. And I think trying to meet people where they are is what I will hopefully continue to do when I go through the rest of my career. Wow. You are the other son that my parents wish they had. It's fine. It's fine. No, a brother's a doctor, a sister's a doctor, and my other brother's an engineer, and I'm doing this. So You're bringing the voices to the masses, so you're... I think you're doing no, a little no, bit better than that. You don't, don't have tell, to sugarcoat don't it. It's fine. That. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to ask, I know when, when speaking about inequities and biases, I mean, we can't talk about that without talking about AI and yes. how much AI has even crept into the healthcare yeah. space. Yeah. And we've seen, it's something that at Fast Company, we have the most innovative companies list that we put out every year. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies in the health space have made it onto the list because yeah. of what they've been doing with AI. Yeah. And a lot of it's incredible. But as we know, even before this mass influx of people like investing in AI, developing it further. We've known that there's a lot of biases in it. And we see, and I can totally see an avenue of that creeping into Mm -hmm. medicine. So for you, how are you thinking about getting in front of the problem before it really becomes yeah, a problem. Yeah, And I hate to say this, but it's already a problem. Yeah, and of course it is. No, <laughs> you know? obviously it is. Um, yeah. I'm going to butcher this because I, I, I wish I had the stats in front of me, but most hospitals already use AI in order to risk stratify how they will actually look at patients, right? And there was a study done that showed that AI actually was less likely to encourage you to treat black patients, basically because of the way it's risk stratified. It saw them as having worse health outcomes. So it's like, let's put them later. Let's focus on the ones that we can, we can actually like fix quicker, right? But it didn't account for all these other problems like social terms of health, which means like access to care, whether you have the funding, whether you have Medicare and Medicaid or private insurance, all these other things weren't input into there as well. And so it basically showed how AI could be worsening healthcare for black Americans, which I think we all knew that could happen, but it was an actual study that showed here's how it's happening. And when you think about it, most hospitals don't have anyone that's like an AI expert. There is no head of AI at any hospital, as far as I know right now, in the United States. And there's no one actually making sure that there's ethical AI being used so that when we use it, in hospital systems, that things like that don't happen. I had a podcast episode with Dr. Ziad Obermeyer, things at UCLA. And we talked a lot about that, the good things that can come out of AI, but also those harmful things that can happen as well. 
And the good happens when you get ahead of it, like you're saying, like where you actually hire someone to be looking and reviewing through all of these different programs and protocols that already use AI and are making sure that when we go forward, they don't do things like risk stratify black patients to get worse health outcomes, but are recognizing that and are, are preventing those biases. AI is literally just what we feed into it. If we feed biases into AI, that will be perpetuated. So I think in order to get in front of it, we need to make sure that we're putting people in the field that are at each of these hospitals, looking at how AI is being used right now, looking at the systems that have already used AI, and really going through and parsing through it, mm -hmm. right? And making sure that, that the things that we have already there are ethical, which I don't think we don't do that enough already. No, not at all. And I mean, it sounds like there are these issues, but people are addressing them, if not mm -hmm. slowly, it could Very be happening slowly. faster. <laughs> but what trends are you seeing that you're hopeful about? Like yeah. when, as you're finishing med school, what are you hopeful about entering in yeah. the field of medicine and in the official capacity? Yeah, I think I'm hopeful that people are recognizing these problems more. I think for a long time we knew they existed, but we couldn't name them. We couldn't figure out how do we actually start to solve these things. And I feel like we're kind of, right now we're kind of hitting the low hanging fruit, right? It's things like devices where let's make them more equitable. Easy, right? Well, not easy, but at least we know we can identify and see the problem. And I think now the next step is actually hiring people to actually get into the spaces and start to review through and putting out more studies, more research studies about what are the effects and how do we actually mitigate those effects going forward. So as an example, New York City hired its first chief medical officer, Dr. Michelle Morse. And one of her big goals has been to go through all of race-based medicine that exists right now which is a lot, and actually figuring out where does it make sense to use and where does it not make sense to use. But then also quantifying how disparities have impact to black communities. One study she showed that was that if there had been reparations given to black Americans, less black Americans would have died during COVID. I think we need more of that type of thinking and reasoning and leadership. And so as, as people push for equity and justice across many industries, including healthcare, I guess, like, how much of a struggle do you see that being in the current climate that we're in, knowing that it may not get better? <laughs> yeah. I feel like we're definitely in a two steps forward, one step back type there situation. Yep. If you think about, for example, Harvard has been really leading the way in trying to figure out how do we be more equitable. And unfortunately, a lot of people stood outside of Boston Medical Center and said, you guys are doing reverse racism. <laughs> you guys are thinking about black people first instead of white people now, mm. which is never the idea. It's to yeah. make sure that we're serving equitable care to everyone, especially communities that have been marginalized for a long time. And so there's definitely this space where I do worry sometimes that we will go backwards, but I think sometimes we do need to go backwards in order to motivate more people to get involved and figure out, look at this, like we're moving forward, we're making efforts, but people are still not understanding it. And I see that step backward as like a way to reframe how do we educate in a way that gets people to understand what the issue is. That means somewhere along the line, we are not teaching why this matters, why this is important, how do we, why this actually is impacting so many communities. We have an opportunity to figure out why we took a step backwards to fix it when we move forward again. Whew. That's a word. <laughs> no, no, I think you're completely right. And yeah, it's, I never really thought about it that way because yeah. the people in the communities where it's affecting them the most, we feel it all the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah. So the fact that it needs to get worse to get better is frustrating, yeah. but it's true. And I think it's not so much a need, but mm -hmm. it's, I hate to say it, but I feel like it's always going to happen. Yeah. When there is a community that has been in power or had the privilege that then feels like that power and privilege is taken away from them. And so I, I think that step forward is then reminding, here's how it helps all of us. This is why it's necessary. And I always say this, that when we serve those most marginalized in 
in the healthcare community, it serves everyone. It makes the whole entire healthcare system better, right? For example, like a pulse oximeter, when we fix that device, it's going to not just better the black community, but it's going to better anyone that has darker skin tones. And right, race is a social construct. So much to talk about there. But that's everyone. That's not just the black community. That's every community out there. So knowing that you are doing something that's inherently difficult, I mean, like studying medicine is hard, but then also diving into the work that you do, because you could easily just ignore it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people know something is wrong. They know these inequities exist, but they just ignore kind of brush it off a little bit. So knowing that you're tackling that head on while also finishing med school, what keeps you going? I think I'm hopeful by the message that I receive, because it, for me, it shows that there are people that are looking for information like this, right? That are that have been looking for it for a long time, but haven't had access. So what keeps me going is knowing that by putting this information out there, one, I'm meeting people where they are, but two, I'm providing life-saving information for people. And I mean, I told two stories, but I'll just round off one more. And we talked about dermatology and how darker skin tones aren't often talked about. I have a whole series called Derm on Darker Skin, where I kind of point out what it looks like on lighter skin and on darker skin. In one of those videos, I took it a step further to talk about a specific type of melanoma that's common in black patients. It's called acral indigenous melanoma, and it presents on the palms, on the soles of the feet, on your nail beds, not in the typical places. And it affects people of African and Asian ancestry more than any other population. After I posted that video, a few months went by, And a lady reached out to me in my DMs and said, I saw your video. I actually ended up going to get my own strange mole that I'd had for a long time biopsied. It came back precancerous. Thank you for letting me know about that. Wow. And it's simple messages like that. Like, I'm putting out this video, not necessarily knowing if it's going to impact anyone, but something that, honestly, I wish I had learned myself. That I wish that my parents knew, that my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, that they all knew. And so I think what keeps me hopeful is knowing that by putting out just like little sound bites like that, information that we should have all had already that should be available to everyone but isn't right now that it can truly save a life and then that information gets passed down to who knows how many other people from that specific woman but also all the other people that listen to that video maybe didn't send me a message they're telling other people about it too so who knows what else that impact is and that's really my hope overall is that this information gets out there that it encourages people to feel like they can go to the doctor's office not fearful anymore but feeling as if they have control over their own health, control over their own life, control of their own body. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. You've given us so much to think about. And I just want to say, I mean, please keep doing the work that you're doing. I'm, I feel very encouraged that you're going to keep going down this path of content and media because I feel like we need people to make these topics more digestible Mm -hmm. because medicine is impenetrable for a lot of people. And I think like it's so important to have these voices on TikTok, legitimate voices, like voices, (laughs) you know, because there's a lot on the other end as Mm -hmm. well. But it's nice to know that there are people who are uh, taking this measured, informed approach to making medicine more relatable. So thank you for everything that you're doing. And thank you for your time. And thank you for having me on. Ah, This is a pleasure. (laughs) Please. My pleasure. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And make sure you rate and comment as well, because we always love to hear from you. I say it every week, and I mean it every week. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, and Julia Shu. Hey, Julia. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. 
Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. 